podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. So uh, today we're going to talk about something that's interesting in that there's a real distinct trend developing around the need to um, drive prices down, uh, get uh, student loans in line with outcomes and with pricing. And there's very dynamic. The uh, FTC and the Department of Education have their mitts all over the place, driving change, and schools need need to either get ahead of this or suffer the consequences of uh, having to react later. And so in this um, this conference call today, we're going to have it, uh, create an overview, an overview of some of the the elements that um, lend itself to actually needing to go through this painful process. If you feel like uh, this is not an issue, then you know this is maybe not the best conference call for you. But if you're really intrigued about everything that's going on with negotiated rulemaking and pricing and student loan and value for money, then you should be able to pick up some ideas here. I'd like to make um, some introductions. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce uh, Brian Haggerty. And Brian is a principal with iTeachers. And uh, Brian, just take uh, 20 seconds and, and describe uh, what you do, please. Hi, everyone. Like I said, my name is Brian Haggerty with iTeachers, uh, our company. Uh, take small schools, and uh, we help put their courses online. That's what we do in a nutshell. Okay, good. So you have your head wrapped around um, the whole um, kind of online um, education delivery piece, and uh, you not only work with large large institutions, but you also work with small schools as well. So <laughs> I think having you on, is, you'll lend a valuable insight today. So thanks for being in our, our podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. And um, Martin Lind is, Lind is perhaps uh, one of the smartest people I've ever known, and he is the um, the manager for Velocify and overseeing the education uh, division of the company. And he uh, understands disruptive technology and how it works um, and, and affects user experience and humans. And Martin, why don't you take a moment and just uh, quickly uh, describe what you do? Well, you did such an awesome job. I, I mean, that's, I'm I'm verklempt. Um, we Velocify um, is a software provider, um, and we provide software for admissions teams at schools that compete for students. Um, both traditional schools that have competitive programs like online programs or adult continuing ed focused programs, and also career schools, uh, proprietary schools. Um, we have about 150 schools, about 5,000 admissions people logging in every day to manage their inquiries uh, because our software handles the process, the admissions process, from the time the inquiry comes into the school um, after you've uh, used enrollment resources services to get them there um, into the time that um, they enroll, in which case we hand it over to the student information system. So um, we're very happy to be part of this, I um, deny everything that Greg said about being the smartest person. He obviously doesn't know a lot of people. <laughs> well, thanks, Martin. You're absolutely right. So um, uh, there's another smart chap on the line today, and that's uh, Sterling Simpson. And uh, I'll, I'll introduce Sterling. He is a, uh, uh, one of our two fulfillment leaders um, in enrollment resources. And he is, uh, in, ter- in the area of enrollment management, he is constantly... Um, researching best practice as it relates to improving conversion rate. And part of Sterling's work is uh, looking at best practice outside of the education industry, bringing it into education and testing it. So uh, Sterling has an interesting kind of strategic view of how to use disruptive technology in terms of improving um, enrollment management and conversion rate. Now, I would have to say this is the smartest person I know, Dr. Rita Girondi. She is the president of Training Masters. And Rita is also not only extremely smart, but very kind, nice person. So, Rita, why don't you explain what you do, um, what your company does at Training Masters? 
thank you for the compliment, Greg. I'm just going to have to be really careful that I don't break every bone in my body when I fall from that pedestal because it's a long <laughs> fall. <laughs> but thank you. Training Masters is actually a company that I, I decided to spin off of the former company that I owned called Thompson Learning Corporation, not to be confused with the publishing company. My former company actually owned career schools after a hitch since 1981 of working for other companies in the career school uh, sphere of post-secondary education. So Training Masters is my current company, and we brought a lot of products into Training Masters that we believe helped us as we developed them in the success of our schools and, and positioning them and poising them so that a company like Kaplan would be interested. And, in fact, they were. And I'm proud to say that my schools became the jewel in their crown, as they often describe them. So um, it's, it's a very significant element of Training Masters is our history and our experience. And our products include a school software management system called STARS. Um, we also have faculty development programs, both online and in-service oriented, either delivered by us or programs that are made available to be delivered by the deans and directors of ed. And we have the Clickers product, which many of you would be aware of as an audience or classroom response system, which is both hardware and software, and now has evolved, as we talk about disruptive technology, into a BYOD environment with the product that we now have called Clickers Live. Cool. And, um, yeah, it, that is really a very cool evolution. And um, we do a lot of other types of consulting with schools, again, all based on our background and our experience. We're a company located in Pennsylvania. And, again, we just take a great deal of pride in our history and our experience. Awesome. Okay, cool. Welcome. Um, panelists, I'll, if you have any side talk going on, I'll just have you remove those folks from your offices and close the doors, please. There's a little tiny bit of background noise, and let's see if that uh, minimizes that. Uh, otherwise, I'll be doing a group muting again. But um, let's dive in, guys, and, and let's give uh, the folks on the call some um, some content and value here. So I'm going to um, set up a scenario here. The, the first question is, you know, between... Um, regulatory environments, uh, shrinking demographics, the number of young people are shrinking in terms of those entering into school, like seniors in high school and what have you. Um, this, the shrinking student loan pie due to um, uh, state governments in particular having to contract um, due to deficits. And uh, th there seems to be a disconnect with many schools in terms of education and job outcomes. Um, the, the, we're going to have to, um, the, the premise here is that we're going to need to offer a lot more value for the dollars invested by students, and we're going to have to become much more efficient in delivering education um, so that we can in turn lower prices. So that that's the premise that I'd like to present to the panel. And so I'd, uh, I'd like you to individually comment if whether you think this is true, or whether this is false, or whether what your thoughts are. And so I think we'll start with Martin. Martin, what do you think of that description around the the, the trend in education going forward? And what are your thoughts? Well, I do agree. You know, you can't fight demographics. There's nothing we can do about that. Um, I do also know that the second and third tier schools are becoming more and more competitive. Uh, they're thinking more competitively, almost the, almost thinking competitively at a career school. Because the top tier schools are never going to have problems keeping their admissions rates below five, you know, below ten percent. Um, the I don't want to say never, but they don't seem to be. The tier two and tier three, three schools are starting to think that way, and they're looking at things that that programs are looking at opportunities like what iTeacher does. They're looking at ways to go online and, and find new audiences. Because if you're a small career school in rural Iowa, no, I'm sorry, not career school, a small uh, liberal arts school in rural Iowa who largely teaches a, uh, a Christian population, um, you're not only going to have so many people that are going to want to go there. But you may be able to attract someone who lives in Virginia to go online at night to get their degree. So I do think that um, technology is going to drive... Um, the next generation of schools that are going to survive the uh, demographic downturn. 
Interesting. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts on, on Martin's comments there? I couldn't agree with him more. The growth potential is, is just absolutely tremendous in the online realm, and, and the cost comes down significantly. I mean, one thing that we have talked about before when you mentioned was the, uh, the partnership between Udacity and Georgia Tech. And one of the things that's really exciting is that we're all watching that partnership play out very publicly. So we see the numbers that they're looking at. So they're taking a program that has you know, 100 students on campus, and in three years, by putting it online, they're looking to go to 10,000. So the numbers are, are just are, are staggering, um, and their their profit margin, even though they're not looking to make much money in the first or second year, um, their profit margins by, by years three, four, and five are, are tremendous. So I think. So uh, in terms of the broad general trends, though, um, where do you see all this going? Uh, do you? Do you see it being an issue um, with prices coming down or having to come down? Or yeah, exactly. Do so, yeah, and with that, is the, they're doing two things, which I think all, things, all schools need to do. They need to make it affordable, and they need to make it accessible. Interesting. We need to do. They need to come down, because by offering courses differently, you can bring down tuition, making it affordable, and, again, you're making it accessible across numerous state lines. So, Sterling, in terms of um, these broad trends, uh, trends that are, um, are, are uh, there's also the proliferation of of um, change in the internet and in- internet tools designed to connect and persuade students to come to schools, and it's becoming quite, I don't know, like a Gordian knot. There's so many things flying in so many directions. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I feel that really uh, with the online industry now and the targeting that you could do online, uh, bringing down the cost will actually should be easier going forward because with like, pay search management as well as SEO, you could target in ways you couldn't before. And so going forward, I think that is one of the ways that will really help with bringing down the cost. You could target people, spend your money more effectively because of the level of uh, targeting you could do and how uh, focused it could be. And so <clears throat> going forward, um, that will be one of the major ways that people will be able to maintain this. So like uh, you're saying that people will be able to better uh, kind of hyper-target their audience uh, but you're saying that people will need to hyper hyper target their audience in order to survive. Is uh, is that what you're really saying, or can people just kind of spray around and sell to whoever? No, exactly. They people have to hyper target because of the competition now. Because everyone's getting online, the costs are going up overall. But if you do the hyper target and you find your niche or find the people to speak to the right people, that's where you'll have the costing measures, and going forward, it'll also be less of your time allocated towards um, the less focused people and more targeting on the right people. Got it. Okay. Cool. Now, Rita, you've been through uh, a couple of these uh, kind of external economic weirdnesses. Um, Why don't you put your perspective on this? Where does this sit in relation to things that have happened in the past? The pendulum swings, and it swings with some variances and differentiation factors relative to the sign of the times. But when you look back into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and the current day, you see different waves of um, regulatory focus from default rates, uh, you know, to cost to reputation management and integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And very little that's on the table right now is brand new. It's twisted, it's changed in a different kind of way, it's um, under a different spotlight, maybe it's, um, it's just taking on a different tone, but that the main elements, the general issues don't change. And I think one of the things that happened in the private career school world and even in the publicly held companies is that we maybe got a little bit too big for the britches and with the cost of associate degrees, let's just pick a top uh, curriculum, let's say culinary arts, uh, soaring into the $70,000 and $80,000 ranges, some of the focus got way out of the original purpose and mission of career schools. 
And so, in a sense, that growth. So, let me just jump in. Can you when can you expand on that comment? That's an interesting comment you've just made. In terms of how cost and so forth has skyrocketed. The, the, the focus on the mandate of career schools. Well, the mission, you know, the original mission of career schools and the, and the absolute beauty that they held for a long time is that they were quickly responsive to the employment needs of the community. So, you know, I'm just going to just get rid of this dog um, here. Um, so, just stand by. I'm going to put everybody on mute, and then I'll just be right back to stand by. Hi, Rita. Can you hear me okay? Rita, I'll just get you to press uh, star six, please. And as well as our panelists. Does that Rita, work? Can, yep, perfect. Sorry, continue okay. on. I think in many ways we lost focus of the mission of career schools. And we started to give up our identity a little bit and tried to some ways successfully and in other ways unsuccessfully compete in areas where we already had dominance. And um, we gave up a little bit of that. We need to refocus and harness that energy again back into what the original mission has always been and where we've been very, very successful both in our mission and our profitability in running excellent schools that meet the needs of the employment community. And it's not necessary to always uh, want to parallel what other colleges and universities are doing when we have a superiority arm in that area. Yeah, it's interesting. They have uh, in Texas. They've run um, uh, correlation around um, programs um, provided by career schools against uh, employer in needs. Career schools um, provide about. Um, uh, Train, uh, employees for 40% of all the major job categories in Texas, 40%. Now, I'm assuming that that will be a similar number in other jurisdictions, plus or minus a few points. But it does speak to your point that that by trying to drift off and offer master's degrees and degrees in philosophy and whatnot, you, you really we're we're move, we're kind of moving off of our position as an industry. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at? It is, and that's not always necessarily bad. There may be some very strong elements that are compelling reasons for doing that. But then we have to be willing to play in that field. And um, that's where I find some of the disconnects with folks that I offer services in consulting and you know, building the school environment and the culture of that environment. You begin to lose a little bit of your identity. In, uh, both internally with the staff and the culture that you've created and externally with the employment community and the overall general community, the education community, et cetera, where you're serving. Those so the wider, the wider you're offering, the, the weaker your position. It's just a, kind of a truism in marketing. It's now, a, it, yeah, it's kind of wanting to be all things to all people at any cost. Yeah, and, and along those lines now, there are some people making some very gutsy, gutsy maneuvers uh, in the market pertaining to price. Um, Brian had touched on this uh, just a, a few minutes ago. Uh, folks, you know, there's Georgia Tech, which is a major, um, highly regarded, accredited university with an international reputation. They have just launched, uh, about four weeks ago, a master's degree in computer engineering, and it's based on a platform by this company called Udacity, which is basically runs online education platforms. And you can get a full-on faculty-supported master's degree from Georgia Tech um, for $6,000. Now, competitors are selling this identical outcome, if you will, for in the range of forty to sixty thousand dollars, and there's hundreds of post-secondary schools that are offering this identical master's degree that have just been obliterated uh, in terms of of pricing. It's crazy. So um, I'd like to see uh, get a, our panel talking about this 
hyper-aggressive pricing. Um, Sterling, I, I know um, Chris Anderson, the uh, editor of Wired Magazine, wrote this amazing book called Free. And his premise is that once you bring information online, it has, it, it has to just drive eventually down to free. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Sterling, if you just press oh. star six. Oh, yeah. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay, um, so can, can you elaborate more what you mean by uh, his thing on free? Do you mean with information or do you mean... Well, with information, any information driving uh, to the Internet, it tends to migrate to free. Examples such as Craigslist, um, basically um, obliterating all the equity value of the classified sections of newspapers. Expedia, uh, wiping out most of the travel agent industry. Um, with a move such as uh, Georgia Tech, is that kind of a bellwether for a big trend where prices are just going to drive due to technology innovation, or is this just an oddball thing? What do, what do you think? I, I think there's a trend going that way, but I don't think it's going to be absolute. So I, I don't think you'll see it's across the board, but it's definitely a way to go. And if your people aren't being successful with where the pricing is now and how things are going now, I could see them being pushed towards that to try to achieve goals that they weren't reaching before. And also with, like I was talking about earlier about the targeting you can do with marketing, if you are going to be able to cut your costs that much uh, or lower tuition that much, you have to be cutting your costs that much too or your acquisition. And so if they have great marketing strategies where they could bring down their cost per acquisition, then that could be possible to bring down your tuition that much. But so, yeah, uh, passing on the savings. Um, I, Martin, along the lines of what Sterling's saying, there's a, uh, a whole, um, uh, say, four or five years ago even, people were saying, oh, online education, it's so boring, people, you know, and it seems to be in recent couple of years, the online education companies have taken it upon themselves to create a, a much... Um, more juicy user experience. Um, Martin, uh, what are your thoughts on that? We absolutely, because there's... Uh, can you guys hear me? I'm not sure if I press star six. Yeah, yeah we can hear you. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, the... There are two, really two, two ways of looking at online schools, right? There's the Udacity and the iTeacher model, which is the asynchronous one where you take it whenever it's convenient for you. And there's the other model where they teach you as if you're in the classroom when the professor is there, um, which is called the synchronous model. And the synchronous model, I think, is what you're referring to with the companies like To You and... Um, uh, so, well, the two years are the companies that are helping schools go online synchronously. There's also academic impressions. There's a whole host of these types of companies because what people, what smart realizing is that they may be good at teaching, but they're not good at developing software platforms to do all these things. And it's a tremendous amount of work to not only start, uh, or I should say, um, to hopefully continue to c compete for students and get them in the door, but also to have the platforms and the and the packages and and the support involved with having students being online. It's uh, this industry makes perfect sense to exist. Interesting. That's really interesting. So, Rito, what Martin is really saying is, you know, the, with, with the uh, the techie companies um, starting to invest in, I guess you should call it user experience, um, the, and, and starting to connect those um, innovations with the education industry, it's starting to kind of create an environment where companies like Georgia Tech, more and more of these outfits can start to just drive prices just to the floor. And, and that's got to have some implications. I mean, it's got to have some implications in the industry, hey? It, it will have implications in the industry, and you have to go back and consider uh, one of the words, probably the most critical word, is value. If they can yeah. do it at a better value for an increased quality, and therein lies part of the issue behind the whole disruptive technology element in education, and oftentimes people want to jump on a bandwagon, smart whiteboards. We want to have, and I found this in the school districts that we work with, we, we want to have every classroom outfitted with smart whiteboards. Okay? Right. 
Mm-hmm. We put it in the budget for smart whiteboards. And I'm not slamming smart whiteboards. I'm just using this as, a, as an example of an educational tool that has and has, that continues to have significant value, but only if it's utilized properly. Well, how do you get it to be utilized properly? You have to train people. Mm-hmm. You can't take the typewriter away from the secretary, and that's going to date me with everybody on this call, but that's okay. <laughs> you can't take the typewriter away from the secretary and put a computer in front of her and expect her to know what to do with it. And I, I actually experienced that back in the 70s, and that's often what we do with technology and education. We invest in it, and then we think, well, gee, why didn't they use it? Why aren't they using it? Why did I see smart whiteboards in the local school district being used as a bulletin board? It all goes back to training. And if you think about it, disruptive technology and education is only going to be as successful as the investment in the training. And when we have some obstacles to overcome in that area, we, you know, have, we per- have to help people feel confident and competent. To me, those are the two big words associated with any type of technology that we introduce. How do we take it from being disruptive to effective? Well, that is there's a, perfect, a gap there, uh, and you have to address the gap by increasing confidence and competence in everybody that we're expecting to do it well. So it's basically um, taking all those poor humans and um, getting them uh, feeling comfy with the disruptive. If that's the value of Apple, hey, Brian? I mean, Apple has a lot of deep engineering in all of their products, but the user experience is, is so dead simple that people just seem to gravitate to it. And I guess that's a, Rita's comments are a perfect segue to, in terms of what you do, um, in terms of you know, how tough, how easy is it to go and recreate something like what Georgia Tech is doing. This is an important insight for the people on the call. Um, what well, are your one, thoughts? One, one thing I'd like to comment on, just what we were talking about before, is that I, I, I don't believe there's sort of that race to the bottom, you know, or there will be that race to the bottom in education or that MOOC-style um, you know, 10,000, everyone, every school is going to have a 10,000 person, you know, uh, graduate degree of $6,000. I think people still are going to want that um, teacher attention. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to a lot of people in the industry, in online education, they'll tell you that you really shouldn't have more, you know, they really should have a, a, a still a student-to-teacher ratio within those mm-hmm. online courses. So I still think we're going to see a lot of people who want that teacher attention in the online courses. Um as far as technology goes, anybody nowadays can recreate what Georgia Tech is doing. Um, it is very simple to use uh, simple technology to create online lectures. Um, you know, simple technologies out there like a, like a Camtasia, which allows you to uh, do recordings of your screen, and you can make online lectures for your students with a very simple and inexpensive technology. So I don't think it's I don't, it's not hard to recreate. Um, I think anybody can do it, and the technology is all you have to do is go into Google, you search for what you want to do, and it'll pop up right in front of you. And uh, again, just really, really inexpensive to do nowadays. The platforms are coming down in price, and uh, there's there's a lot of people out there to help you do it. Interesting. Um, Okay, so we have some varying opinions from our our panel on that. Um, Either way, I think the game's changing all over the place and um, uh, folks uh, on the call I, I, I think really the key thing is to start to entertain the idea of at least blending online with traditional classroom prior to starting enrollment resources with uh, Shane Sparks 10 years ago um, I worked for University of Phoenix and uh, the most successful program was something called FlexNet which combined in classroom training with um, uh, what was then uh, an asynchronous platform, learning platform, using, of all things, Outlook Express. And the school used Outlook Express because they knew it was bulletproof. Everybody could use it. It wouldn't break. And um, it's like, you know, the um, pioneers get the arrows kind of thing, you know. So, um, okay, so let's move on to our next topic. And this is related to pricing, and it's that of product leadership. So, the user experience within the classroom um, has has been poorly attended to by many schools, uh, in, in my view. Um, so there are trends in, in program leadership or, or program delivery. In other words, the user experience um, 
the, the user experience. And so online, you know, there's been challenges around the user experience and holding interest, and then, but also in the classroom. And I guess the question that we ask our clients uh, would be, if somebody came down to you and said that you had to offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee around the programs that you're offering to your students, would you be comfortable giving a 100% satisfaction guarantee? And the response is generally, are you nuts? And so I know, Rita, you are a real champion or apostle around user experience in the classroom and um, leaving students blown away with you know, the quality of their day-to-day existence in school. You have a cool product, Clickers, um, among other things. Why don't you just kind of roll with that topic for a moment for the folks on the call? I think what we have to try to really hone in on is, when it comes to the user experience, is what the user needs. Not the way we want to deliver it, not necessarily the way technology might be penetrating, but the way the student, whether it's an online or in-classroom environment, how does the student want to learn best? And what we really have to do is help that student build his desire to learn. And oftentimes, you have the instructor and professors at all levels of post-secondary education that are not focused on the learner. And they're not thinking about, how can I deliver this in a way that they are best going to learn it? Why, why is that? This is not on learning. The focus why, is on why teaching. Is it? So, Rita, why is that? Why it makes sense to me to well, I think to have a, because, a standing experience because people, teachers, people who are let me put it this way: people who are traditionally put into teacher or instructor or professor role, whatever their title is, they're put into the role of guiding a learning experience, and their concepts. It's just a traditional concept that we're we follow and we model is that I'm the expert, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. And I'm looking at it more from a teaching perspective than from a learning perspective. How do I create a learning environment where, number one, whether it's online or in a classroom, my students want to be there? That's number one, because if they don't want to be there, they're voluntary learners, and they're going to march away. They're going to log off or walk out the door. So I, I have to focus on how do I create a learning environment where they, number one, want to be there, and number two, when they leave at the end of that period of the day or that class or that online experience, they say, I want to go back for more. I am learning in ways that I have never learned before. This, this person, this instructor, this professor, this teacher is presenting material to me and involving me, engaging me in this experience. I'm not a bystander. I'm not a passive learner. I am involved in this. And then the teacher's whole attitude about this and the culture of the environment where that individual works, starting with leadership, has to be producing that kind of environment. I'm here to create a learning environment. And every other operation in my company, whether it's a ground school or an online environment, has to support that. So um, I'm going to challenge you on the spot here to leave with our, our listeners two micro-tasks or two specific tasks that school leaders can implement to improve the user experience for students, like right away, or one, even one. How's that for putting you, go, you on the spot? No, I'm I'm happy to express that. You're only limiting me to two. That's really hard. I have like a hundred and two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, far away. What they have to do is they have to sit back and honestly evaluate the cultures of education that they have going on in the institution or in their online environment. Is that culture a traditional tell students what they need to know or is that culture an engaging in the learning process? And really evaluate it honestly. Walk around the school, what do you see? Make an honest evaluation of it. And then the second thing they need to do is they really need to engage in dialogue with other people on how do we reverse this? How do we create that that conversation in every student's head when he leaves the school or logs off of the, of the computer, how do we create the conversation in his head that says, this is the most outstanding experience I've ever had in a learning environment, and I want to keep going? 
And then the, the business conversation out- with that. The business outcome is, um, yeah, I'll give you a 100% guarantee uh, on your school experience. Man, if schools could give a 100% guarantee on their, uh, uh, for kids going to school, um, that they could, for whatever reason, if they weren't happy with their experience, they could get a money-back guarantee, wouldn't that make the marketing a little bit easier? Of course, very, very few uh, schools have the guts to do that. Um, we have a guarantee like that, but we're a, a vendor, right? We're a provider of services. It's a different deal. But really, it does speak to what you're saying. Can you create an environment where they're excited to come the next day, right, Rita? You want that? That's the dialogue. That's the conversation you want them to have with themselves when they're walking out the door or logging off of the computer. How we create that conversation. And it's a culture shift. That's basically what it comes down to. If it's led by a very competent leader who really understands how to get the message into people's heads and hearts that are on staff, it'll happen. Interesting. Huh. That sounds like a, a standalone conference call just on that topic alone. Um, we are running out of time, and I did have one more thing I wanted to, to touch on, and that is. Um, efficiency in enrollment management. So, you know, improving conversion rates through the whole enrollment management cycle, which is lead gen and lead conversion, basically, it can shave operating costs um, to, to allow for some stress-free price reduction. So, in, an example is uh, assuming a school has, a, say, a 20% operating surplus, whether it's um, you know, a community college or a proprietary school. You know, uh, proprietary schools have profit. Uh, not-for-profit have operating surpluses. Let's not fool ourselves. It's They're one and the same. And um, so if we can shave 5% in savings in terms of how you deliver a student uh, and you have a 20% margin, that means you can reduce your prices by 25%. Uh, without af- adversely affecting your surplus. Now, that's uh, important because, you know, this just trickles down to the, the poor students that have to take these student loans. And instead of having a $16,000 student loan, they can have a $12,000 student loan. makes all the difference. And it does make all the difference to the Department of Education and uh, the FTC um, and the regulatory folks in Canada. And this is going to be a big deal because these government guys are not wavering this time. And um, the battle is, is basically in their favor. And so people are going to have to really wrap their head around aligning their the student loan levels that students are taking with the first-year outcomes in when they get jobs. And so inevitably there's going to have to be some price adjustment for schools to get that in line. This is one way to do it. Martin, your offering really does speak to a way to, to help with improving efficiency in conversion, enrollment management conversion. I'd like you to speak to this a little bit, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we're, the idea of what your, your, your basic math is really says the whole thing, which is if you, have, if you can improve starts by 1% and you have a 1,000 students that inquire um, that's an extra student, and what's that? What is that worth, um, both to the student and to the school? Um, so we always offer assumption, and we, we base it all on the research, which is I think why we're um, so simpatico with enrolled resources, because you guys are all about seeking truth through data. Um, you know, one of the studies we just did was about the value of duplicates. Most schools look at duplicates and say, "Gah!" Shake their shake their fist at their data supplier or their lead provider and say, "You're giving me duplicates." But the fact that some reached out a second time can tell you a lot. So if you, are they reaching out a second time because they didn't like the first admissions person they spoke to? Are they reaching out a second time because you didn't get back to them quick enough? Are they reaching out a second time because they want a different campus or a different, they didn't know how to get a hold of you because you didn't leave your information for them? So the most mundane things can really affect how you, your school performs and the admissions side, and that's really where um, I think you're, uh, the enrollment resources um, scorecard comes in as so so helpful. Um, we're about to do research actually on voicemails. Should you leave them? When should you leave them? 
Should you leave them every time you leave them your call? Should you never leave them? How long should they be? So that's the type of research we do. It's these small things that can make a huge difference and are effectively free, right? That's right. If, so, Sterling, if, if uh, you can improve the conversion rate of a landing page from 5% to 10%, that's only a, a 5% improvement, yet it really is a 100% lift in revenue, right? Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> so if you could bring, like, looking at just a, as a percentage points, you're only bringing 5%, but if you're bringing 100% more revenue, you could see, like, down the line exactly what that will be doing. And looking at it, like, if you're just on your website, to improve it 5% is just uh, incrementally you could do that by changing five or six different elements that might improve it a percent or half a percent here and there to get to that 10%. And then you'd see the benefits, like you said, double as many uh, people coming in. Yeah, folks, imagine it, uh, when, when your admissions reps are making outbound phone calls. Imagine that the phone call they're making is uh, like a radio ad. And if you accept that silly notion for the moment as being true, it's a radio ad with a an audience of one person, uh, then you can use the best uh, direct response um, knowledge to split test that radio ad. And through trial and error, you can create a marginal increase, maybe one out of 20 people um, phoning back that otherwise would not phone. And you go, well, big deal, Greg, one out of 20. But let's crunch the numbers. If somebody's making conservatively 30 outbound phone attempts a day, that's 600 in a month. And if you can get an extra 30 phone calls uh, with a, an admissions rep that otherwise were not hap happening, that's an extra three students a month. It's an extra 36 students a year. So that admissions rep can be generating an extra six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000 a year in enrollment revenue just by simply being smart around enrollment management and how they leave phone messages. So, on, uh, we're just touching on some, some uh, elements here, folks, and the purpose of this was not to drill deeply into one, any one area, but to get you thinking about how you can start to think about ways in which you can become more efficient, provide more value inside the school, and we wanted to leave you with some, uh, some thought starters and ways to initiate conversation with your staff. And to that end, um, on behalf of the panel, we wanted to thank you for hanging in and listening to us and really sincerely hope that we've gone and left you with some things to ponder. Um, we do have a little uh, giveaway. So the first five people on the call today that um, phone this, uh, text in this number, we'll give you a, a free mystery shop uh, worth $2,000. So you might want to just note this number, 250-888-7111, 250-888-7111. And um, if you text in, if you're one of the first five people, you will win this little prize. Now, it is a freebie, so we will have to schedule this over the few, next few weeks, we can't do it like tomorrow, but nonetheless, it's a good value, and it's just a thank you for coming on the call. Uh, the panel is going to stay behind uh, for a few minutes if anybody has any informal questions. The way that you ask the question is just by pressing star six, and then you'll come on the call with us, and you can ask your questions. So thank you so much, everybody, and uh, it's early January. Go uh, hit some out of the park. All the best. We'll uh, just hang for calls now. Take care. Brian and Rita and Martin and Sterling. Hi. Well done, you guys. Hi. Hi. Thank you. It's Valerie with New England Tractor Trailer Training School in Summers, Connecticut. I had a question um, because there's nothing written in front of me. Rita has a, a product that the students are using in the classrooms. It's called Clickers with a C. It's called correct? Clickers with a K. It's K-L-I-C-K-E-R, capital Z. Capital Z, okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's plenty of stuff online, but if I didn't have the correct spelling, I wasn't going to be able to find out about it. <laughs> Rita, why don't you explain Clickers uh, for a little, little overview for our friend here. Thank you. I'll just 
I will take a minute and do that with you. The Clickers technology has been around for a while as handheld remotes and software. Um, we have software that integrates directly with PowerPoint, so you can add multiple choice, true, false, survey type questions to any PowerPoint presentation. You can make it questions at the beginning, spread them throughout the presentation, or even make it a quiz, a review at the end. It's up to the, the developer, the person doing the presentation, or the classroom session to determine how those questions best fit. Each student holds a handheld remote and responds to those questions, and you get immediate feedback. Everyone does. Uh, based on what those responses were in the classroom, how many of the students got it right. Phenomenal review as a former teacher. I love using it for a review before a certification exam or any test because it shows me that 48% of my students got that question wrong. Immediately I can clarify wherever the confusion exists. Now, so what you're saying, so Rita, what you're saying is it's a tight feedback loop for instructors to see if they're getting through to their student body or not. It, it is, that's one of the features. I guess, Greg, the other thing that I have to emphasize, and it goes back to engage, making your experiences engaging for the students so that they're actively participating. They don't have to raise their hands when many of them are embarrassed or ashamed or fearful that they're going to give a wrong answer. They can reply anonymously using the remote. I can save all that data. I can go back and look at how each student responded. I can even print out study guides for them so each student can see how he or she responded and where they need to focus their attention. But it, it just creates a much more interactive and engaging uh, classroom. And, That's yeah, and, and of course it has evolved to Clickers Live. And I'm sure you're familiar with the whole bring your own device movement talking about disruptive technology. And now we have software that allows the instructors to create the same kind of an environment, but rather than the students having to hold our remote control units, they can log in with their own devices, agnostic to platform. So it doesn't matter if it's a smartphone or an Android phone or a tablet or a Nook or a Kindle Fire. It doesn't matter as long as there's access to the Internet. They can log wow. in with their own device. And the most powerful thing about Clickers Live is that when they go home, they can access the, the uh, review again and study from that as they choose. So it just makes it much more fun to learn. You know what, Greg? You said the magic word. I don't know where in our educational history we ever thought that, learn, that, that having fun while learning is wrong because if you look at the research, we learn quicker and retain longer when we enjoy the process. But we've all been in classrooms when the teacher has said, and we might have only been seven years old, but we've heard it, we're not here to have fun, we're here to learn. What is that all about? And why do yeah. we ever condone something like that? So, so it's Valerie, right? You're on the phone there? Yes, you and I have spoken many times, Greg. That's right, yeah. So Valerie, does that help a little bit? That helps a lot. It sounds like a f amazing, great, exactly what I was looking for. Well, okay, Valerie, let's if uh, only I were a teacher make... instead of the placement director. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, we'll get you in touch with Rita, and uh, we'll see. Rita can help you out, perhaps. Uh, um, any other questions, people hanging out? Any other questions? Yes, I had one. Sure. Uh, who is, my who is Austin, this? I'm with Maximum Style Tech School of Cosmetology in Logan, Utah. Um, hey. I was really intrigued by the concept of... Uh, offering that 100% money-back satisfaction guarantee. And I was wondering, um, it, what are the obstacles that the schools that come in contact with that idea, what are the obstacles that they, they have? Or, you know, what's their biggest concerns about that? Their biggest concern is that they're terrified they'll have to write checks back. But if you think about it, they already are giving um, a 100% money-back guarantee in that um, if they don't meet um, their student loan funding requirements now, going forward, they're going to have to write back checks, and they're going to have to minimize um, uh, admissions numbers. So... I guess the point that we've been trying to make through white papers and things like this is that you're going to have to do it now. There's no choice because the government's forcing schools to write back checks um, if people are not paying their student loans going and, forward. And I think I understand that concept. I guess my question was more like... Um, 
concerning the student experience, what are their what are their fears or the reasoning for the students coming back and saying, "I want my money back"? You know, Martin. Martin, that, that would make for a very interesting uh, little research study, wouldn't it? Uh huh. Yeah. No, well. I mean, I, it's it's kind of it's it, yes it would be super interesting it's downstream from us but if we had the data we'd definitely be interested in doing something like that. Uh, Brian, what about you? you? You have any thoughts on that? Um, I know Rita does, so hang tight, Rita. <laughs> With regards to 100% guarantee. Yeah, it's a gutsy kind of notion that really has not been brought up in the industry to date. I, I think the, I think a, a good way to do it from a maybe from a career school perspective, which I think one person is trying to do it, is instead of just saying if you're not happy with the experience, base it more on, on job placement. Okay. Okay. Which I think there is one school that's trying that out uh, now, and I'm not sure, I think they might be in Michigan, where they are offering um, 100% money back if they're if not able to get employment through their, uh, through their program. Hmm. Now, Rita, you have, I believe, uh, a placement, job placement kind of platform, do you not? We do, and I failed to mention that earlier. Planet Grad is an I, online... I reviewed it, excuse me, I reviewed it the other day, and I went to yeah. my boss, and I said, I want this. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's oh. a pretty cool tool right now, but I think um, just the reluctance of some schools wanting to implement that, having been a former school owner... There really needs to be a close look at the way you establish the quality factors because, you know, you open yourself to students saying three weeks before graduation, I want my money back. And therefore, there has, there has to be some type of safeguard in there for the school as well. Um, if a student is failing courses and has the capability of determined in the admissions criteria but just for whatever reason, working too many long hours, uh, the significant other at home became insignificant over the weekend, whatever the reason is, uh, I think some of the schools haven't ironed out yet how you manage that kind of element of a 100% money-back guarantee factor. Well, Rita, I think what it is is it's uh, more of a, a rhetorical question in a way in that I know like when we do our our money back guarantee on our scorecard um the dynamic changes uh and it's like you know better bloody well give people value here for their money you know like so the pressure come, falls on us right Sterling to go and you know perform and and if there's a somebody if there are kids in school uh, and there's a money back guarantee in the back of the mind of the 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 people delivering the education man you know that energy heats up around how do i create that amazing user experience uh, but I, I don't think that people will do it i think people are too scared chicken however uh, it's just the notion that we refuse to let go of because that is, at the end of the day, the biggest problem in education is the lack of leadership at the product level. And uh, mm -hmm. so, in my view, mm -hmm. in Shane's view. Agreed. Yeah. Any other questions? Anybody else on the line that wants to ask a question? No? Okay, I think what we're going to do is we're going to wrap this call up, and Paul has recorded it, and uh, we're going to distribute this to our panel, and then folks uh, feel free, to, we're going to redistribute it uh, to our lists and, and put it on our blogs, and I think this has been a really interesting conversation, and you guys in the panel, you're awesome, and um, we'll talk to you all individually very soon. Take care, everybody. Right. Thanks, Thanks everybody. everybody. Cheers.